back to our listeners for the second part of our podcast focusing on the UK. My name is Jasmine. I'm the Head of Employment and Intellectual Property in Stevenson Harwood's Hong Kong office. Following on from our podcast with Kimia Sepazard, where we discussed immigration options and how to establish a business in the UK, we now turn to areas of employment law that business owners should consider when starting a business in the UK. Today I am joined by Serena Fawkes, a senior associate in the Stevenson Harwood London employment team. Serena, for most business owners looking to establish themselves in the UK, the main concern will be how easy it is to hire and fire employees. If we look at hiring first, what do employers need to consider when recruiting employees? Hi, Jez. There are three main things that any prospective business owner should bear in mind when hiring employees in the UK. First, it is unlawful to discriminate against anyone either in the recruitment process, such as making it more difficult for a disabled employee to get a job, in the terms on which you offer employment, such as offering someone less pay because they are a woman or come from a particular country, for example, or by not offering a person employment, such as not hiring them because they are pregnant or a certain religion. I'll explain more about discrimination rules later in the podcast. Secondly, as an employer, you will have data protection obligations to both employees and potential applicants under the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR for short. This means you need to consider the type of personal information you will be processing in the recruitment process and ensure you meet the lawful conditions for processing that data. Thirdly, once an offer has been made, all UK employees are entitled to a written statement which sets out in one document the key terms and conditions of their employment. This includes information such as their job title, start date, salary, working hours, annual leave entitlement, notice period. This must be provided to the employee on or before the first day of their employment. If you're only needing casual and ad hoc labour, then you could decide to engage a consultant or an agency worker instead of recruiting employees. However, there can be complications around those arrangements, and this podcast is focused on employment relationships. You mentioned that the contract must include details of the employee's remuneration. Are employees entitled to a national minimum wage? Yes, they are. Workers who are at least 25 years old are entitled to a minimum wage of £8.72 per hour. And workers between 21 and 24 years old are entitled to a minimum wage of £8.20 per hour. The government adjusts these figures each April and there are lower minimum wage requirements for workers under the age of 21 and apprentices. In addition to salary costs, there are also social security and pension costs that have to be paid by employers. This includes employers' national insurance contributions, which are paid to the government. These are currently 13.8% of salary. Employers also have to set up a pension scheme and pay minimum pension contributions of at least 3% of salary to the employee's pension scheme. Employees themselves also have to pay income tax, national insurance and pension contributions, which are deducted by their employers from their salaries through the payroll process. There are no mandatory benefits. However, employers often pay for private medical insurance, life assurance, subsidised gym membership, car allowances or other benefits. Thanks, Serena. Now we touched on the employment contract, which is a document that is tailored to each employee. But another key document businesses may consider preparing is the employee handbook. Are there any legal requirements for an employer to have a handbook? UK employers are not required to have an employee handbook, 
but there are a few policies they are required to have in place. This includes details of the company's disciplinary and grievance policies and information on pensions if this is not covered in their contract. They are also required to have a health and safety policy if there are five or more employees. And they are strongly encouraged to have whistleblowing and data protection policies. So what other policies are usually included in a handbook? Commonly, employers will have policies in place to deal with leave entitlements such as annual leave, sick leave, maternity leave and paternity leave. Companies should also have policies on data security, as well as other IT and communications policies like social media policies. Increasingly, in light of COVID-19, companies are also adopting flexible working and working from home policies. In respect to flexible working, all employees in the UK with at least 26 weeks of continuous service, so six months, have a statutory right to request flexible working patterns for any reason. These could include part-time working, amended hours or permanent working from home arrangements. These requests must be dealt with in a reasonable manner and an employer can only refuse them for certain business-related reasons. Could you explain what the minimum requirements are for employees taking annual leave? In the UK, employees have a basic right to annual leave under the working time regulations. If the employee is working full-time, so five days a week, then they are entitled to 28 days paid annual leave each year, which includes UK public holidays. If employees take paid leave on the eight normal public holidays, this means they are allowed to have a further 20 days paid annual leave per year. This number would be prorated if employees are working part-time. Employers are of course allowed to give more than this amount if they so choose, and it is common for employers to offer extra holidays as a recruitment and retention incentive. What about sick leave? In the UK, there's a scheme of statutory sick pay, which means that employees can receive a payment of £95 per week for up to 28 weeks within a three-year period. As with most leave entitlements, the company is entitled to pay employees in excess of statutory sick pay. Commonly, employers will pay full pay for a set period of time, which will then drop down to half pay or just statutory sick pay. This can increase with length of service, so a new employee might not receive any enhanced sick pay, whereas a long-serving employee might receive several weeks or months of full pay. Now that we have discussed sick leave and annual leave, it makes sense to look at the leave entitlements for family and pregnancy. Serena, what should employers be aware of when it comes to maternity leave? Firstly, they need to be aware that all pregnant employees are entitled to 52 weeks of maternity leave, regardless of how long they have been employed or the number of days or hours they work. In the UK, employees can receive statutory maternity pay for up to 39 weeks or nine months of their maternity leave. For the first six weeks of their maternity leave, statutory maternity pay is paid at a rate of 90% of the employee's average earnings. For the following 33 weeks, it is normally a flat rate, which is currently £151 per week. This means that employees receive some maternity pay for the first nine months of their maternity leave. In addition, they continue to accrue annual leave, which must be paid at their normal salary rate. So that can add on a further period of paid leave. Employers can reclaim some of the costs of statutory maternity pay from the UK government. To be entitled to receive statutory maternity pay, the employees essentially need to have started employment before they became pregnant, although the legal entitlement isn't worded quite like that. Like with sick pay, employers often offer enhanced maternity pay to employees with a certain period of service, such as if they've been working for one or two years before the baby is born. Again, this tends to be full pay for an initial period of time, which then steps down to 75% or 50% of pay, and then statutory maternity pay. 
Contractual benefits should continue during maternity leave, like gym memberships and private health care. When employees return to work, they are entitled to return to the same role or a suitable alternative role, depending on how much leave they take. And they are protected from being discriminated against due to being pregnant or having taken maternity leave. So what about fathers or the mother's partner? Are there any statutory provisions regulating paternity leave? Yes, paternity leave can be taken for one or two weeks and doesn't have to be taken straight after the birth. Employees are normally entitled to statutory paternity pay, which is paid at the same flat rate of statutory maternity pay. But many employers just continue normal pay for the full two week period rather than making the payroll adjustment. Are there any other forms of family leave that employers should be aware of? In the UK, we also have a relatively new system of leave called shared parental leave. This allows working parents to share up to 50 weeks of leave after the birth of a child, reduced by any maternity leave taken by the mother. Effectively, this works so that the mother gives some of her maternity leave to the father. For example, the mother might commit to take nine months of maternity leave rather than 12 months, and the father can then take the extra 12 weeks of leave at any time before the baby's first birthday. Most employees who are entitled to shared parental leave will also be entitled to statutory shared parental pay, which is paid at the same flat rate as statutory maternity and paternity pay, so £151 a week at the moment. There is no obligation on employers to enhance shared parental pay, even if they enhance maternity pay. As with maternity leave, employees have protection against being discriminated against due to taking shared parental leave. Adoptive parents have similar rights to those afforded to employees qualifying for maternity leave, shared parental leave and paternity leave. There's a further right for parents to take unpaid parental leave to care for children under the age of 18. This is particularly relevant at the moment where parents have found their normal childcare arrangements have been unexpectedly cancelled. As it's unpaid, this type of leave is not normally used by employees very often, but it could, for example, be used to cover childcare over school holidays. I think we have covered there some of the key issues and entitlements that employers need to be aware of during the employment period. As I mentioned before, one of the main areas of concern for business owners will be how easy it is to fire employees. Agreed. Regarding dismissals, there are three points employers need to consider. The first point to make clear is that UK employers do not have the right to terminate employees' contracts at will in the UK. An employer must give an employee notice that it is terminating their employment, except in rare situations where the employee has committed gross misconduct, where it would be unlawful to continue to employ them. All employees are entitled to a statutory minimum notice period from their employer, which is roughly one week per year of service, up to a maximum of 12 weeks. However, employment contracts often stipulate a longer notice period, especially for more senior employees who will typically have a three, six, nine, or even 12-month notice period. There is no minimum notice period for an employee to resign, but employment contracts normally mirror the notice periods to be given by either party. Employees are usually permanent employees, meaning they are employed until the employee or employer gives notice to terminate the employment. However, you can also have a temporary or fixed-term employees whose employment automatically terminates on a certain date that is fixed in their contract without any extra notice needing to be given. If an employer does not dismiss an employee in accordance with their notice provisions, then the employee can bring a claim for wrongful dismissal. Payments in lieu of notice, or pylons, can be used so the employment is ended early and the balance of pay for the notice period is paid in a lump sum or in instalments. Employers can also place employees on garden leave and not require them to work during their notice periods, 
but they must continue their salaries and contractual benefits until their notice period expires. Serena, do employees have the right to make a payment in lieu of notice to bring the contract of employment to an immediate end, as is the case in Hong Kong? Or is this only a right of the employer? No, employees in the UK cannot do this, and they can be held to the full length of their notice period unless there has been a serious breach of contract by their employer. However, if it's not a contentious situation and the employee wants to leave early, then the parties often come to an agreement that the employee can leave early provided they do not move to a competitor or otherwise damage their employer's business. The employer in this case would save on the salary costs for the remainder of the notice period not worked. Employers in the UK are entitled to impose post-termination restrictions on their former employees. For example, not using the employer's confidential information or misusing intellectual property, which don't generally have a time limit in the UK. They can also restrict key employees from working for competitive businesses, soliciting customers or poaching colleagues. However, this must be time limited and tailored to the particular risks of the employee's role. Finally, employees with at least two years service have the right not to be unfairly dismissed, which means they must be dismissed for a fair reason and a fair dismissal procedure must be followed. So Serena, we do not have an unfair dismissal regime in Hong Kong. What does this right not to be unfairly dismissed mean? In short, it means that it is harder, though certainly not impossible, to dismiss an employee who has worked for at least two years. A dismissal will be unfair if there is not a fair reason for dismissal, and or a fair procedure is not followed before dismissal. A fair procedure would normally involve a clear internal process being followed before dismissal, such as a disciplinary or a redundancy process that the employee is involved in. There are five potentially fair reasons for dismissal. One, the employee's conduct, such as a gross misconduct dismissal. Two, their capability, such as they become too ill to work. Three, redundancy. Four, illegality, i.e their visa expires or for some reason it's illegal to employ them, or five, some other substantial reason, which is a broad category to cover other circumstances where dismissal would be fair, such as a loss of trust in the employee or a breakdown in the relationship. Ensuring that a fair procedure is followed often means it will take longer for an employee with at least two years of service to be dismissed. For disciplinary dismissals, there is a code that employees are expected to follow and individuals can be awarded extra compensation if it is not. There are also requirements that should be followed before making an employee redundant, although if the employee has less than two years of service, then they can't bring a claim to complain about the process, unless they allege it's due to discrimination or whistleblowing. Also, all employees have the right from the first day of their employment not to be unfairly dismissed due to whistleblowing or discrimination. I'll explain discrimination shortly, But whistleblowing broadly means an employee being dismissed or treated detrimentally due to them having raised what is called a protected disclosure. For example, a disclosure their employer is committing a criminal offence or breaching a regulatory rule. The rules on whistleblowing have been tightened up and they do not include purely personal complaints, such as an employee complaining that their salary or bonus wasn't large enough because they don't get on with their boss. So Serena, what are the consequences for an employer? if they do dismiss an employee unfairly? The employee may bring a claim for unfair dismissal in the employment tribunal. If the employee is successful, then a tribunal will award a basic award based on salary and length of service, which is currently capped at £16,140. And the tribunal may also make a compensatory award, which is compensation for the time they spend unemployed or with reduced earnings after their dismissal. 
This is capped at the lower of £88,000 or 52 weeks actual gross pay. So therefore, low paid employees receive far less than high paid employees. However, the cap on the compensatory award will not apply if the employee has been dismissed due to whistleblowing or discrimination. So those claims are potentially very valuable if the employee is a high earner. Is there anything else that employers should bear in mind when dismissing employees? As I touched on when discussing the hiring process, it is unlawful to discriminate against an employee in recruitment during the course of their employment or at the end of their employment because they have a protected characteristic. This is discrimination laws. There are currently nine specific characteristics that are protected by discrimination laws, and these are sex, race, nationality or ethnicity, disability, age, sexual orientation, religion or belief, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, and pregnancy and maternity. Presumably, if an employee is subject to discrimination in the workplace, they can bring a tribunal claim? Yes, that's right. Unlike unfair dismissal, there is no cap on the amount of financial compensation that can be awarded in discrimination cases. In addition, an award may be made for injury to feelings plus aggravated damages. Discrimination cases can be very damaging for businesses' reputations as well, and regularly hit the media in the UK. For regulated businesses, there may be reporting requirements if allegations of discrimination or whistleblowing are raised. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, many businesses have been struggling financially. Whilst we are discussing establishing a business, if the worst happens and they need to make redundancies, what do employers need to be aware of? Firstly, as touched on when discussing unfair dismissals, a fair procedure must be followed and the employees at risk of redundancy must be consulted. For larger scale redundancies involving 20 or more employees in the same establishment, the redundancy consultation will need to involve employee representatives or trade unions, as well as the affected employees, and the process will take longer. For small scale redundancies, the consultation process could take two to three weeks if the reasons and the selection are straightforward. Secondly, employees who are made redundant and who have at least two years of service are entitled to statutory redundancy pay. This is calculated using a formula based on age and length of service. The current maximum statutory redundancy pay entitlement is £16,140. It sounds like we've covered everything an employer would need to be aware of from hiring to firing. Is there anything else that we might have missed? I should mention TUPI, which is the Transfer of Undertakings Protection of Employment Regulations. TUPI is a legal provision derived from a European-wide directive which protects employees if the business they work for is sold to another employer. This would be an asset sale rather than a share sale of their employing entity. For example, if a particular business line is sold out of a larger business, then the employees who are assigned to work on that business line would transfer to the buyer with their length of service and contractual terms preserved. TUPI can also apply in outsourcing situations where a service provider changes And we can advise clients if they think this might be applicable to their business. And Brexit, will this impact on anything you've mentioned? Helpfully not. At present, we don't expect any of the points I've explained to change when Brexit is finalised in the UK. Much of UK employment law derives from UK-specific legislation and case law, so Brexit won't impact on that. The UK government has said that employment laws which derive from the EU, including some discrimination laws and the TUPI rules, will be maintained and not amended after Brexit. Thank you, Serena, for talking us through employment considerations when setting up a business in the UK.
That's all for our podcast today. You can listen again to our podcast and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. Thank you for listening. Thank you.